Tonight we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. So if you want to find that passage in the scripture, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. You know, I know some of these songs that we sing in RUF may be new to some of you, but we really sing them because it's so important that the songs we sing are honest about what the normal Christian life feels like. And I I think I'm more and more convinced of that the longer I do ministry, particularly at Belmont, where so many students come from kind of Christian backgrounds. Now, this is true of a lot of RUF groups, um, but particularly Belmont. I think we get a a very high proportion of people who've been raised in church. And um, a friend of mine, Bill Boyd, who used to do RUF down at Texas in Austin, and now runs a study center at University of North Carolina. Um, He said one time that almost every student, almost every student I get at the University of Texas that comes out to RUF is trying to get back to a mountaintop experience they had in middle school at camp. Almost every student I get is trying to get back to a mountaintop experience that they had at camp in middle school. And the, the tragic thing about that is that so many people think that that's the true, faithful Christian life, that that's what it feels like. So we sing songs that help come against that misunderstanding. Because I'll tell you what, I'm absolutely convinced of this, that if you misname normal, you really mess people up. If you misname normal, you really mess people up. And I think a lot of people are not sure about Christianity because they've been raised in a context where normal has been misnamed. And they've been made to think that if they have doubts, if they have struggles, if they feel at times like God is even doing battle with them, that something must be wrong. That's why it's so important that we look at this passage tonight in Matthew Matthew chapter 4. It follows immediately after what we looked at last week, which was the baptism of Jesus, where he hears this voice affirming him. A a dove comes down from heaven, a voice speaks from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately the Bible says this happens. Look at Matthew chapter 4, start at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, And he said to him, all these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, 
and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So he goes right from the baptism to the temptation. And the Spirit of God is the one who led him into the desert to be tempted. That's a paradigm shift for a lot of people. Let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this passage and how it helps us understand more about the real Jesus, who he was, and what he came to do. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you uh, for your goodness, for your grace. We thank you that Matthew 3 and Matthew 4 are one after the other in the Scripture so that we could understand what the normal Christian life was like for you and what it is going to be like for us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I I think here's the thing that's interesting. Jesus is by himself in this episode. Do you know what that means? That means that this episode was so important that Jesus must have told the disciples about it. There was no one there to know what was happening. The only way this gets in the Bible is if Jesus thinks it's important to tell the disciples what happened. And the disciples think it's so important that it shows up in all four of the Gospels. I don't know if you know this or not. Even the virgin birth is only in two of the four Gospels. I don't think that means it's not important or it's not true, but this is in all four Gospels. (laughs) If you want to understand who Jesus is, you can't skip this passage. And that's important, right? It's important to to the first century church, right? That's why they included it. It's also important for the church today because I still think that we struggle to really believe that baptism, the mountaintop experience, hearing the voice from heaven say, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. We just don't see how that fits hand in hand with the temptation and the spirit leading Jesus into the temptation, right? I think we're tempted just like Jesus, so often to really want to use power to get what we want rather than submitting to God's will. And this is a very instructive, very important passage. So what do we learn from this passage? That's what we're going to look at tonight. What do we learn from the passage? And then what do we learn from the temptations in detail? That's what we're going tonight, okay? So what do we learn from the passage as a whole? Um, Well, the first is that baptism Spirit baptism and trials go hand in hand. Jesus said this in John 15, No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. (coughs) Which means when we're thinking about the Christian life, we should see the life of Jesus as a framework or a paradigm for what we should expect. That's what Jesus is saying. If I experience suffering and persecution, so will you. And this is, you know, putting chapter 3 and chapter 4 together gives us a really important, realistic picture of the normal Christian life. The affirmation of the voice. He literally hears a voice saying, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. Don't you long for that? Don't you long to hear God say that over you? He does say that over you if your faith is in Christ. But to actually hear the words, hear the voice. But then that's immediately followed by the Spirit driving Jesus into the desert to the face the temptations. 
and particularly temptations that seek to redefine what does it mean to be the Son of God. Now, in the translation I read, in most English translations, uh, the devil regularly says, if, 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 if you're the Son of God. But in the Greek, it's actually, since you are the Son of God. So what the devil is, is not calling into question whether or not Jesus is a son. He's saying, since you are the son, therefore you should have these kinds of assumptions and you should expect these things. So he's not calling the fact of Jesus' sonship into question. He's calling into question what sons and daughters of God should expect the normal life with God to feel like, right? He's seeking to redefine what the Christian life is like. And I think, based on the students that I talk to now for 25 years, that most of the church has failed to really teach people what the normal Christian life feels like. Because so many students from good Bible-believing churches show up at Belmont and wonder if they really are Christians now that they're struggling, now that they have doubts, now that they don't feel God as powerfully as maybe they have at other times in their life. And it's not, the problem is not so much the feelings, the problem is what they think the feelings mean. And that has everything to do with what people understand the normal Christian life to feel like, right? Sometimes it's not actually the trials, it's the framework that you bring to interpret the trials. And often that framework is wrong particularly when it comes to what does it mean to be a child of God and what does that feel like, right? See, if you don't understand what this text is teaching, when trials come, you're going to think that you must not be spirit-led, that you must have somehow got out of the center of God's will. Gosh, I hate that phrase. It's nowhere in the Bible, the center of God's will. Like God's will is this little path that you've got to figure out by some supernatural ability that some people just seem to have to kind of hear his voice and know exactly what to do. Jesus heard the voice. Clearly, the Spirit led him into the desert to be tempted. An experience that made him have to wrestle with what does it actually mean to be the Son of God. So many people, if they have this wrong paradigm, when they feel those kinds of faith-shattering experiences, those kinds of doubts, that kind of ache in their soul, those questions that you wish you could push back down, they, they wonder whether or not they really have somehow missed God, have somehow gotten off the path. And that's why it's so important to see here the Spirit leading Jesus into the desert. When you are in a desert experience, do not assume that the Spirit has not been involved in that. Again, it has everything to do with you, what you think the normal Christian life will feel like. And as I said, so many people are trying to get back to this mountaintop experience they had in middle school camp. Um, there's a guy that, uh, that I think a lot of, he's passed away now, named Jack Miller. And he used to say this, think about this. He said, living by faith feels like death. Living by faith feels like death. It was that way for Jesus, you know. When he gets to the end of his life, the Garden of Gethsemane, he's wrestling there 
with, Father, is it your will? If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Don't make me go to the cross. Nevertheless, your will, not my will. And he submits. That temptation that he faced in the garden is the same temptation that he's facing here in the desert. Can I achieve the glory that God has planned and avoid the suffering? And as you remember, his disciples keep trying to dissuade him. No, you don't have to go to Jerusalem and die. There's always this temptation to think that if I'm truly a child of God, suffering can't be part of the normal life. And if I am suffering, it must be because maybe I'm not actually a child of God. So it's so important that we understand the normal Christian life is not pure mountaintop experiences. It's the baptism, mountaintop kind of experience, and then the Spirit leading us into the desert, right? We have to understand that. The other thing to know about this passage overall is that Jesus is actually obeying where Israel as a nation has failed. And you remember I said this last week, when Jesus comes to John to be baptized, John the Baptist says, no, I I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should baptize me. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, John, it is necessary that we do this now for all righteousness to be fulfilled. And then Matthew shows us Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days, just like Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. And every passage that Jesus quotes in this section that we've read tonight is from Deuteronomy. Jesus is very self-consciously obeying where Israel failed. He's saying, you didn't learn the lesson that I was trying to teach in Deuteronomy, in the wandering in the desert. So now I'm going to take it upon myself to obey in your place where you failed. He's living the life that Israel should have lived, fulfilling what Israel failed to do in the desert. Jesus doesn't just show us how to live. He lives the Christian life and gives us credit for it when we trust in him by faith. When you put your trust in Jesus, he takes the sin and the punishment you deserve is put on him, but the life and the declaration that God makes about him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, is given to you. It's a switch. I know sometimes, you know, we hear the Christian life described as, you know, you know God has this book and everything that you've ever said and done You know, he writes down in a book and when you become a Christian, God just wipes out your book and open it up and there's there's no bad stuff in your book. But that's not actually what the Christian uh, gospel is, is about. What the gospel is, is that, yes, you have a book and God sees everything. He does. But he also knows Jesus has a book. And when you become a Christian, God switches the covers. You don't have a blank book now waiting for you to fill it up with your obedience and your righteousness. You have the righteousness of Christ. This is why Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, this beautiful passage, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. Him who knew no sin, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him you would become 
the righteousness of God. That's huge. And this is where you see it. Right here, Jesus is obeying where we all fail. And the third thing to see overall about this passage is that Jesus understands what the Jews and the disciples didn't understand. And he understood this right from the beginning of his ministry, that the messianic king is the suffering servant. Now, this is subtle, but here's what's fascinating. The voice speaking from heaven in chapter 3, what the voice says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, is actually a combination of two different passages in the Old Testament. It's not a quote of just one passage. It's a quote part from Psalm 2. <laughs> and Psalm 2 is what we call a messianic coronation psalm. It's a psalm that they would use when the Davidic king was being crowned. Jesus, the ultimate king who would sit on the throne of David, hears this coronation psalm quoted at his baptism and Psalm 42. Psalm 42, sorry, Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is one of what are called the suffering servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And the thing about Israel and their expectations, they did not think that the messianic king and the suffering servant were the same person. And the only reason that the early church uh, became convinced that those passages both spoke about Jesus is because of what he said and how he lived and how he died. But if you read the Gospels, you'll find it took a lot of convincing. Even to the very end, the disciples didn't understand. When Jesus dies, they're moping around like everything is lost until he appears on the road to Emmaus and says, Guys, didn't you understand everything the Messiah had to suffer? Jesus understood that from the very beginning, right? And he understood that there was no way for him to take his throne without going through the cross. That's what Satan is tempting him with. That you don't have to be the suffering servant. You can just be the messianic Davidic king. You have all power. Use it. Use it. Your cause is right. Your cause is just. Use it. It's like the ring in the Lord of the Rings, right? Isn't it fascinating how everybody, Frodo offers that ring to everybody, right? And it's a temptation to all of them, except Tom Bombadil. But if you've never read the books and only seen the movie, then you don't understand and know who Tom Bombadil is. And I'll just say, that's tragic. Um, he's the only one who can't be tempted. And you know why? Because Tom Bombadil is like a little child. He is, in a way, the first Adam who's untouched by sin. That's how he functions in the Lord of the Rings. Therefore, power can't corrupt him. But everybody else is tempted to take this ring of power, use it for a good end, but they know, they have wisdom to know that it can't work that way. Right? That's what Satan is tempting Jesus. Take the power. Take the power. Make all things right. Wipe out the Romans. Deal with injustice. Deal with brokenness. Deal with sin. Corruption. But Jesus knows the only way that that can really happen is if the messianic king embraces the call to be the suffering servant. 
All right, so let's look at what we see when we look at the temptations in particular. Now, the first thing you might say is, come on, a devil? A devil, really? What's up with the devil? I will just say this. I think it takes a great deal of faith to believe that all the evil and brokenness in the world results from purely human evil. I don't think that's a sufficient explanation for all that's wrong in the world. And I would caution us before we just reject out of hand the idea of a devil or a supernatural evil presence in this universe, that we be careful that we're not judging the Bible from kind of late modernity Western presuppositions and thinking that they're automatically better. We have a problem sometimes thinking that ancient people were stupid or naive and that modern people are automatically smarter. It's not always the case, and it's worth at least pondering. The Bible is not ashamed to talk about this one. And remember, it's not a matter of people saw something weird and they were like, I don't know what to make of that, so I guess it must be a devil. The only reason the devil is in this story is because Jesus told the disciples that's what happened. And if Jesus said there was a devil that tempted him, that he interacted with, then I believe it. You may not. And you know what? That's okay. We're glad you're here. And we hope you'll continue on this journey as we continue to see all these kind of wild things that happened in the life of Jesus. But let's dig into this. So the first temptation, the first temptation, um, if you are the son of God, remember, I, really more technically, it should say, since you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. This is really a, a temptation to choose power over weakness. It says here in the text that Jesus was hungry. He's hungry. That's a legitimate need. Hunger. And Satan says, you have the power to deal with your need. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? Now, this temptation, Jesus responds with a quote from Deuteronomy, and it's a quote from Deuteronomy 8. The reason that's important is Deuteronomy 8 is Moses' summary of what the point of the 40 years wandering in the desert was all about. You might have wondered, why, like, why did God have Israel wander for 40 years in a desert? And here's what Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3 say. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, it was miraculous, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what God is teaching Israel in Deuteronomy is you need to depend on me. 
And guys, that's the exact same thing God was trying to teach Adam and Eve in the garden. Trust me. Trust me to provide for you. I've put you in this garden. I've given you all of these wonderful trees for food. But it says that they looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it looked pleasing to the eye. And they took and they ate. Rather than trusting God's provision, they took matters into their own hands. And it's the most difficult lesson for God's people to learn, to trust him rather than taking things into their own hands and providing for themselves. This is what God kept teaching them. But notice he's teaching them in the desert by making them hungry so that he can feed them so that they can learn the ultimate lesson. Man does not live by bread alone. Even if you have bread, if you don't have Jesus, it's no kind of life. Right? Jesus put it this way. What does it gain a man? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So Satan says, use your power to meet a legitimate need. And in some ways, this is the temptation of pragmatism. It's the temptation like this is a legitimate need and I have the power to fulfill it. And it's so difficult to resist, isn't it? Francis Schaeffer, who is a a great pastor and writer who's passed away now, but he preached a wonderful sermon one time. I love the title. It's called The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. It's not enough to do the Lord's work. You must also do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And, And there's lots of examples of that. Like, it's not enough to preach the gospel if you manipulate people in doing it. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in, uh, to the Corinthians says, we have renounced shameful and deceptive ways. But I know a lot of churches that think that as long as you can get people to make a decision for Jesus, it's appropriate to scare them to death, to manipulate them, to trick them, to do bait and switch kind of things. It's not. It's not. The Lord's work in the Lord's way. We must resist the temptation to think that the end justifies the means. The church needs to resist using power in inappropriate ways, even when we think that there's a good result that will come from it. And I don't need to remind you of that in this um, political season, right? It's so damaging to the witness of the church and the witness of the gospel. And it's not good enough to say the result The need is so great that we can therefore use power in ways that are inappropriate. Now, that doesn't settle what's appropriate and inappropriate. That's a longer discussion. But I think we must always stop and ask the question, is is this an inappropriate or appropriate use of power? We need to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. The second temptation is uh, a temptation... We might call it to to embrace presumption over faith. Look here in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, Since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, because it's written in the Bible. He will command his angels concerning you. That means 
He will use his angels to protect you, care for you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So now Satan actually quotes the scripture and says, take God at his word. And what does Jesus say? He says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, it's not just enough to quote scripture. You have to understand the context. You have to understand the context. So um, Satan here is quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And you know what Jesus quotes? Verse 10. He quotes verse 10. And verse 10 sets the context for verse 11 and 12. Yes, God has promised to protect and to care for his Messiah. But the thing he says first, before even that promise is, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus says, this is not appropriate to pull these verses out of context and just use them to justify whatever course of action seems good, right? Here's the way I would like like you to think about it. Faith, true faith, takes all of God's word into account. Presumption takes a promise out of context. True faith takes all of God's word into account. Presumption takes a promise out of context. And Jesus shows us here how to handle Scripture. I remember, you know, even before I was a Christian, I was a little boy, I would hear stories about my great-grandfather. He, um, you know, never went really probably past elementary school. Um, he worked uh, in the, um, the packing plant, you know, um, work, you know, there in Omaha. And um, he was a, a Baptist all his life, taught Sunday school, read his Bible. I have his Bible. It's just marked up everywhere. Um, but uh, uh, at some point, a Jehovah Witness uh, temple or meeting house, whatever they call it, uh, Kingdom Hall, I guess it's called, opened up across the street from his house. And um, that meant that they got a lot of missionaries, you know, knocking on their doors. And this is what my mom and my grandmother, everybody would say about, about Grandpa McCown, is that any time they would quote a passage, you say, well, hold on now, like you quoted this verse, but do you know the verse before and the verse after? It, it, it means something very different when you understand the context. Uh, we in RUF want you to know how to use the scripture. We, we actually, like we have three things that we really want you to understand by the time you graduate college, if you stick around RUF. We want you to understand justification. We want you to understand how can you have a relationship with God and know that you're beautiful in his sight because of what Jesus has done. That's justification. We want you to understand that. We want you to understand how to grow as a Christian, what we call sanctification, how to become more and more conformed to Jesus and his image. And then we want you to understand how to use the scripture because we want you to be convinced of justification and sanctification, not because I said it or Edda said it, but because the Bible has convinced you, because that's the only way it's going to stick. Jesus models for us the importance of knowing the scripture because we have to have the scripture to do battle against the lies of the enemy of our soul. So, presumption over faith. You see, I think there are some people that think confidence in prayer, 
like unlocks God's blessings. And that if you pray without doubt, you can get what you want. That's presumption. It's not faith. The key is not taking promises out of context. Presumption takes a promise out of context. And then this last temptation, glory without suffering, right? And here Satan basically just, you know, unmasks himself. He wants to be worshipped. And this is the great irony, of course, is that Jesus is the Lord. Like Satan thinks like he can offer everything to Jesus. Jesus is the one who made all things, through him all things were made, and he will inherit all things. But his inheritance will come after his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And and Satan is saying, no, you can have it now. It's not even Satan's to offer. That's what's crazy. It's not even his to offer, right? And you have to just like wonder, you know, does Jesus understand how the kingdom works? He does. He understands how the kingdom works, right? It's through suffering that God's kingdom is going to move forward. You can never defeat Satan by strength, your own strength, and power, right? You can't simply say no. You have to know the scriptures and be able to fight back that way. I remember Martin Luther used to say this, you know, if the devil kind of whispers into your ear and tells you that you're basically a miserable piece of crap, and he will do that, you understand, right? He said, don't argue with the devil, because actually it's kind of true, <laughs> But say to the devil, listen, devil, yeah, you're right, but go take it up with Jesus. He lived and died in my place. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see me for who I am. He sees me clothed in the beauty of Christ. So don't argue with the devil. Go to the scripture and say, devil, go take it up with Jesus. He lived and died in my place. He knows exactly who I am, and he loves me anyway. This is what's so great. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know what's so good about that? That if God discovers, it's kind of human logic, discovers after you've been walking with God for a while that you're actually a worse sinner than he might have thought, it doesn't matter. He died for you while you were yet a sinner. Therefore, there's no revelation of the fact that you are a sinner that's going to change things. He knew what he was getting into. A friend of mine liked to say, you know, um, God knows what it's like to be in a bad marriage because he's married to you. He does. He's married to you. You're not a great bride. (laughs) But Jesus died to make you spotless. And he's not going to ever be dissuaded from that. He knew full well what he was getting into. He knew full well what the baptism and the temptation meant and the road that he was walking. And the, the closer that he got to the cross, the harder it got. But I love this little phrase in the Gospel of Luke. It says, 
he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He wouldn't be dissuaded no matter what. That's good, good news. Well, let me just say one last thing as we close. When we think about the devil, notice this. The devil leaves at the end of this story, right? And the angels come and minister to Jesus. But the devil doesn't quit attacking Jesus. He even later uses Peter to tempt Jesus in really the exact same way. Jesus, there is another way. You don't have to go to the cross. And this is so crazy because this is right after Peter finally seems to get it. Jesus is like, who do people say that I am? They're like, this and this and this. And he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Lord. You are the Christ. And Jesus is like, very good. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Like, you finally understand the gospel. And the reason you understand is because my Father in heaven opened your eyes. But Peter still doesn't get it because Jesus says, okay, now that you get who I am, let me tell you, I need to go to Jerusalem to die. And Peter says, no, you don't. And do you remember what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. He recognizes that temptation. He recognizes that temptation. Listen, this is not a temptation that you face once. Satan will love to come to you all the time and say, how can you think that you're a true child of God when you think the things that you think and you do the things that you do and you don't do the things that you don't do? How dare you think that you're an actual child of God? Satan is the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says. You know, we sometimes think, you know, we watch these crazy movies. I know when I was your age, we used to love to watch this movie called The Exorcist. I don't recommend. Um, but it, it, it kind of misleads you about the main way Satan works because we think that Satan is like, you know, possessing people and they're like throwing up green pea soup. You know, famously, Linda Blair was like, they use green pea soup. She's vomiting all over everybody. Her head's spinning around, all this crazy stuff. And we think that's the way Satan works. But what the Bible says is generally what he does is he calls into question over and over again, what does it mean to be a son? What does it mean to be a daughter of the living God? And, and, and here's the thing. Colossians chapter 2 has this amazing place where it says, you know, that, that Satan is taking the law that accuses us because we've broken the law, guys. We haven't lived the life we should have lived. But it says that what Jesus did at the cross is he took that and he nailed it to the cross. And we did that. He disarmed the powers and the principalities. They have no more basis for accusing you if you're a child of God because Jesus took the punishment. And Jesus gave you credit for his life of resisting temptation. You can't offer up to God your record of resisting temptation and ever feel good about it. But you don't have to because you offer through the hand of faith the obedience of Jesus. That is the greatest way to glorify God and to glorify this gospel is to offer through the hand of faith the obedience of Christ rather than your own best efforts, rather than your own excuses. 
Don't make excuses. You will be prey for the accusations of Satan. Say, Satan, yep, it's true. And it's even worse than you think. But go take it up with Jesus. He lived and died in my place. Let's pray together.